Section 2 of Lord of a Thousand Sons by Paul William Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Harvey. There was a moon hanging low over the hills, a great scarred shield, thrice the size of Earth's, and its chill white radiance filled the valley with colorless light and long shadows. Overhead flamed the incredible sky of the Sagittarian regions, thousands upon thousands of great blazing suns, swarming in strings and clusters, and constellations strange to human eyes, blinking and glittering in the thin cold air. It was so bright that Laird could see the fine patterns of his skin, loops and whirls on the numbed fingers that groped against the pyramid. He shivered in the wind that streamed past him, blowing dust devils with a dry whisper, searching under his clothes to sheathe his flesh in cold. His breath was ghostly white before him. The bitter air felt liquid when he breathed. Around him loomed the fragments of what must have been a city, now reduced to a few columns and crumbling walls, held up by the lava which had flowed. The stones reared high in the unreal moonlight, seeming almost to move as the shadows and the drifting sand passed them. A ghost city, ghost planet. He was the last life that stirred on its bleak surface. But somewhere above that surface, what was it? That descending hum high in the sky, sweeping closer out of stars and moon and wind? Minutes ago, the needle on his gravidomagnetic detector had wavered down in the depths of the pyramid. He had hurried up and now stood looking and listening and feeling his heart turn stiff. No, 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 not a janyard ship, not now. It was the end of everything if they came. Laird cursed with a hopeless fury. The wind caught his mouthings and blew them away with the scudding sand, buried them under the everlasting silence of the valley. His eyes traveled to a sneak boat. It was invisible against the great pyramid. He'd taken that much precaution, shoveling a low grave of sand over it. But if they used metal detectors, that was valueless. He was fast, yes, but almost unarmed. They could easily follow his trail down into the labyrinth and locate the vault. Lord, if he had led them here, if his planning and striving had only resulted in giving the enemy the weapon which would destroy earth, his hand closed about the butt of his blaster. Silly weapon! Stupid popgun! What could he do? Decision came. With the curse, he whirled and ran back into the pyramid. His flash lit the endless downward passages with a dim, bobbing radiance, and the shadows swept above and behind and marched beside. The shadows of a million years closing in to smother him. His boots slammed against the stone floor. Thud, thud, thud. The echoes caught the rhythm and rolled it boomingly ahead of him. A primitive terror rose to drown his dismay. 
He was going down into the grave of a thousand millennia, the grave of the gods, and it took all the nerve he had to keep running and never look back. He didn't dare look back. Down and down and down, past this winding tunnel, along this ramp, through this passageway, into the guts of the planet. A man could get lost here. A man could wander in the cold and the dark and the echoes till he died. It had taken him weeks to find his way into the great vault, and only the clues given by Murchison's reports had made it possible at all. Now he burst into a narrow antechamber. The door he had blasted open leaned drunkenly against a well of night. It was fifty feet high, that door. He fled past it like an ant and came into the pyramid storehouse. His flash gleamed off metal, glass, substances he could not identify, that had lain sealed against a million years till he came to wake the machines. What they were, he did not know. He had energized some of the units, and they had hummed and flickered. But he had not dared experiment. His idea had been to rig an anti-grav unit, which would enable him to haul the entire mass of it up to his boat. Once he was home, the scientists could take over. But now he skinned his teeth in a wolfish grin and switched on the big lamp he had installed. White light flooded the tomb, shining darkly back from the monstrous bulks of things he could not use, the wisdom and techniques of a race which had spanned the stars and moved planets and endured for fifty million years. Maybe he could puzzle out the use of something before the enemy came. Maybe he could wipe them out in one demoniac sweep, just like a stereo film hero jeered his mind. Or maybe he could simply destroy it all, keep it from janured hands. He should have provided against this. He should have rigged a bomb to blow the whole pyramid to hell. With an effort, he stopped the frantic racing of his mind and looked around. There were paintings on the walls, dim with age but still legible, pictographs meant perhaps for the one who finally found this treasure the men of new egypt were shown hardly distinguishable from humans dark of skin and hair keen of feature tall and stately and robed in living light he had paid special attention to one representation it showed a series of actions like an old-time comic strip a man taking up a glassy object, fitting it over his head, throwing a small switch. He had been tempted to try it, but, gods, what would it do? He found the helmet and slipped it gingerly over his skull. It might be some kind of last-ditch chance for him. The thing was cold and smooth and hard. It settled on his head with a slow massiveness that was strangely living. He shuddered and turned back to the machines. This thing now, with the long coil-wrapped barrel, an energy projector of some sort, how did you activate it? Hellfire, which was the muzzle end? He heard the faint 
banging of feet, winding closer down the endless passageways. God, his mind groaned. They didn't waste any time, did they? But they hadn't needed to. A metal detector would have located his boat, told them he was in this pyramid rather than one of the dozen others scattered through the valley, and energy tracers would spot him down here. He doused the light and crouched in darkness behind one of the machines. The blaster was heavy in his hand. A voice hailed him from outside the door. It's useless, Solomon. Come out of there. He bit back a reply and lay waiting. A woman's voice took up the refrain. It was a good voice, he thought irrelevantly, low and well-modulated, but it had an iron ring to it. They were hard, these Janyards. Even their women led troops and piloted ships and killed men. You may as well surrender, Solomon. All you have done has been to accomplish our work for us. We suspected such an attempt might be made. Lacking the archaeological records, we couldn't hope for much success ourselves. But since my force was stationed near the sun, I had a boat lying in orbit around the planet with detectors wide open. We trailed you down and let you work, and now we are here to get what you have found. Go back, he bluffed desperately. I planted a bomb. Go back or I'll set it off. The laugh was hard with scorn. Do you think we wouldn't know if you had? You haven't even a spacesuit on. Come out with your hands up or we'll flood the vault with gas. Laird's teeth flashed in a snarling grin. All right, he shouted, only half aware of what he was saying. All right, you asked for it. He threw the switch on his helmet. It was like a burst of fire in his brain, a soundless roar of splintering darkness. He screamed, half crazy with the fury that poured into him, feeling the hideous thrumming along every nerve and sinew, feeling his muscles cave in and his body hit the floor. The shadows closed in, roaring and rolling, night and death and the wreck of the universe, and high above it all he heard laughter. He lay sprawled behind the machine, twitching and whimpering. They had heard him out in the tunnels, and with slow caution they entered and stood over him and watched his spasms jerk toward stillness. They were tall and well-formed, the Janyard rebels. Earth had sent her best out to colonize the Sagittarian worlds 300 years ago, but the long, cruel struggle, conquering and building and adapting to planets that never were and never could be Earth, had changed them, hardened their metal and frozen something in their souls. Ostensibly, it was a quarrel over tariff and trade rights, which had led to their revolt against the empire. Actually, it was a new culture yelling to life, a thing born of fire and loneliness and the great empty reaches between the stars, the savage rebellion of a mutant child. They stood impassively, watching the body until it lay quiet. Then one of them stooped over and removed the shining, glassy helmet. 
He must have taken it for something he could use against us, said the Janyard, turning the helmet in his hands. But it wasn't adapted to his sort of life. The old dwellers here looked human, but I don't think it went any deeper than their skins. The woman commander looked down with a certain pity. He was a brave man, she said. Wait, he's still alive, ma'am. He's sitting up. Darius forced the shaking body to hands and knees. He felt its sickness, wretched and cold in throat and nerves and muscles, and he felt the roiling of fear and urgency in the brain. These were enemies. There was death for a world and a civilization here. Most of all, he felt the horrible numbness of the nervous system, deaf and dumb and blind, cut off in its house of bone and peering out through five weak senses. Weirda, Weirda, he was a prisoner in a brain without a telepathy transceiver lobe. He was a ghost reincarnated in a thing that was half a corpse. Strong arms helped him to his feet. That was a foolish thing to try, said the woman's cool voice. Dariush felt strength flowing back as the nervous and muscular and endocrine systems found a new balance. As his mind took over and fought down the gibbering madness which had been laired. He drew a shuddering breath, air in his nostrils after how long? How long had he been dead? His eyes focused on the woman. She was tall and handsome, ruddy hair spilled from under a peaked cap, wide-set blue eyes, regarded him frankly out of a face sculptured in clean lines and strong curves and fresh young coloring. For a moment he thought of Lorna, and the old sickness rose. Then he throttled it and looked again at the woman and smiled. It was an insolent grin, and she stiffened angrily. Who are you, Solomon? she asked. The meaning was dear enough to Dariush. Who had his hosts, memory patterns, and linguistic habits, as well as those of Weirda? He replied steadily, Lieutenant John Laird of the Imperial Solar Navy, at your service. And your name? You are exceeding yourself, she replied with frost in her voice. But since I will wish to question you at length, I am Captain Joanna Rostoff of the Janyard Fleet. Conduct yourself accordingly. Dariush looked around him. This wasn't good. He hadn't the chance now to search Laird's memories in detail. But it was clear enough that this was a force of enemies. The rights and wrongs of a quarrel, ages after the death of all that had been Vierda, meant nothing to him. But he had to learn more of the situation and be free to act as he chose, especially since Laird would presently be reviving and start to resist. The familiar sight of the machines was at once steadying and unnerving. There were powers here which could smash planets. It looked barbaric, this successor culture, and in any event, the decision as to the use of this leashed hell had to be his. His head lifted in unconscious arrogance. His, for he was the last man of Weirda, and they had wrought the machines, and the heritage was his. 
he had to escape. End of section two. Recording by Paul Harvey.